2 Samuel chapter 3, title of the message today is Survivor. Survivor. Everybody, no doubt, by, by this point in time, unless you live under a rock, familiar with the television show Survivor, right? <clears throat> Premise of the show, the idea, you take 20 contestants, you, you drop them into a survival situation, and, uh, and there... It's, man, it's, it's dog eat dog, right? It's a, who's, who's going to be the last man or woman standing. There's a motto for the show. It's in their logo. I wonder if anybody can tell me what it is. Yeah, there you go. You're, you're out, 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 play, out. What is it? It's outwit, outplay, and outlast, right? Outwit, outplay, outlast. And for weeks on end, by manipulation, by deceit, uh, through the forming of alliances, by backstabbing and betrayal, uh, the contestants work the angles to outwit, outplay, and outlast their opponents to see who will be the sole survival, who's going to be the sole survivor, who's going to rule and reign supreme. Now, if you understand the premise of Survivor, survivor then you get a rough idea of, of what uh, is happening here in Second Samuel in these opening chapters. See, what's going on here is that King Saul, the king over Israel, has died. And now what's taking place, there's a fight to see who's going to rule, who's going to reign. And everything that you see on the television show Survivor, you see happening here in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel as well. There's alliances, there's deceit, there's manipulation, there is backstabbing, and there is betrayal. And the chapters are very instructive for us today because whether or not you realize it, the, the, the idea of Survivor, well, we're all contestants in Survivor. Every single one of us is a contestant in the cosmic game of Survivor. The, the, the big difference, though, is that the, the cosmic game of life, well, it's not a game, right? And the consequences of failure are ever so much higher than just being sent home from, from a television show. The consequences are a mess. So it's imperative today that we learn how to outwit, outplay, and outlast our enemy because there is an enemy that, that is attacking us and wants to see us lose the game of life. And so very instructive for us today. I'm going to pick up where we left off. We're in <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up, back up a couple of verses from last week, pick it up in context. We'll start in verse 26. <clears throat> and then we read there, it says, And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well uh, of, of Sirah, uh, but David did not know it. Here's what's going on. <clears throat> David has been anointed by God to be the king over Israel. But God in his sovereign will and in his providence, having anointed David for the kingdom... He, he knew that David wasn't ready to, to assume the position of, uh, of king. He was called by God to be the king. Saul was the guy who was the king of Israel, but Saul, well, he let his success go to his head. It, 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 he started off in great humility, humbly serving God, and being used as God's instrument as the king over Israel. But, but Saul got detoured, started to, you know, let his success go to his head, and he began building his empire, not building the kingdom of God. The straw that broke the camel's back was that Saul uh, began to erect a monument to himself and to take all the credit for, for his victories, and then when God told him that he had a specific task he wanted him to do, he wanted him to utterly destroy the Amalekites because the Amalekites had an agenda to destroy uh, the, the, the people of God and God sovereignly knows what he's doing. And he said, I want you to, to utterly destroy them and all their stuff. Well, Saul went in and he said, well, you know what? I'm going to keep the good stuff for myself. Problem is, God had already said it's all bad and I want to destroy it, but he wanted to keep the good stuff for himself. <clears throat> Saul is not unlike you and me. We have areas in our life where we say, well, I don't want to destroy this. I want to keep this. I want to, I want to hold on to this. And God's like, that thing's going to kill you. 
You need to destroy that. But, but we call it good what God has called bad, and we want to hold on to it. Well, this is what Saul did. And, and it reached a point in time where God says, Saul, you're out. You're all done. And I'm going to replace you with a man who is after my own heart, a man who's going to do what I've called him to do, who's going to live a yielded life to me. That was David. So God called David to be the king, but God <clears throat> prescribed for David 10 years of testing and trial. Much of it at the hands of Saul, who spent his life after God said, you're, you're all done, spent his life looking over his shoulder for the guy that was going to come and take the kingdom from him. Because God, even though he told Saul, you're not going to be the king, he left him there in, in place for God's sovereign purposes. Much of it which was going to be Romans 8.28 in operation. Romans 8.28 says that in all things God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. <clears throat> so God left Saul in place there and even knowing that Saul was going to be you know, attacking David and, and just making David's life miserable, but God prescribed that for David because he wanted to season David he wanted to prepare him for the kingdom. So what's happened now is that Saul has died in battle along with his son Jonathan. And now God is moving David into that place to rule and reign. But there are people that were serving Saul. Abner, being the general of Saul's army, uh, chief among them, did not want to yield their power to David. They had learned well from Saul. And so Abner, the general of Saul's armies, he saw an opportunity and he takes Ishbosheth, which is one of Saul's sons, and he props him up to be the king. Abner is really the power behind the throne. Ishbosheth is just a puppet. But so Abner's calling the shots, Abner doing this. Well, Abner in that place, he begins to fight against David's men, David's army. And, and so what now you have is civil war. Not what God wanted, but this is what's happening. And so in the course of doing that, in their first battle, fighting one another, something that Abner precipitated, he instigated it. Well, what happened is you had Joab, who is the king or the, the, the general of David's armies, Joab and his brothers, and Abner kills Joab's brother in battle. Now, Joab's got an axe to grind. Well, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Abner is starting to have problems because here his puppet king, Ishbosheth, is starting to react to some of the stuff that Abner's doing. Abner, he, he sees one of Saul's concubines and he says, oh, you know, here's Rizpah, which means hot coal. This chick was hot. And he's like, I'm going to take her for myself. Well, it's more than that because what, what, what this was was a power play. The guy that would, you know, the, the, the king, his wives, his concubines, they're off limits. And anybody who would make a play on one of them, it's more than just, hey, this chick is hot and I'm going to make, make her mine. It's, hey, guess, there, guess what? There's a new sheriff in town. And this, this was the, the king's concubine. Well, now I've taken her for myself, so guess what? That makes me. I'm, I'm the guy who's, who's really in charge. Well, Ishbosheth spots this a mile away. He's like, hey, wait, no, no, no. What are you doing? That's not right. Well, Abner freaks out. And so what's he do? Being ever the political opportunist, he sees that the, the, the power is shifting. He has a lust for power. And so he says, guess what? I'm going to defect. I'm going to go over to David's side. So he goes over to David's side. We looked at that last week. And in the process, when he goes there, Joab is out in battle. And so Joab comes back into town and now it's, it's told him, guess, what, guess who was here while you were gone? Yeah, the guy who killed your brother. He came and he's in cahoots with David and he says he's going to defect and be part of, of, of Israel now. He's going to fight for Israel or, you know, and, and the, you know, David and, and so on and um, tribe of Judah. And David, you know, has, has completely embraced this and Joab's freaking out. So Joab goes to David. He's like, what are you high? Are you on glue? What are you thinking about? This guy, he came in, he doesn't have good intentions, he has bad intentions, and he just cannot get past his hatred for Abner. So what does he do? We read here in verse 26, when Joab had gone, or rather when Joab had gone from David's presence, well, he calls for Abner, says, hey, come on back, Bring Abner, let me talk to you. Abner comes back, Joab takes him aside into the gate, just technically outside of the city, 
puts a knife in his, bed, in his belly and, and kills him. And this is what we read in verse 27. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashael, Joab's brother. <clears throat> Afterward, verse 28, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. See, what happened is this murder that Joab had perpetuated against Abner, who was the you know, ruler of all the armies of these 11 other tribes, this messes things up for David because what this does is it gives David a bad reputation. <clears throat> gives David the reputation among these other tribes that, you know what, David is a brutal man. David is a vengeful man. You can't trust David. And so David is saying, oh, wait a minute, I had nothing to do with this. This is cold-blooded murder. It's wrong on every level, and I want everybody to know, God, chief among them, look, I had nothing to do with this. So he says in verse 29, let it rest, the, the burden, the judgment, the condemnation, the consequences, let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. In other words, he calls a curse down on him. And, and so Joab, verse 30, and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Ashael, in Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, <clears throat> tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. Now, I'm persuaded here that David is not just, just, just mourning the murder of this man. It's, it's a much greater burden that David is carrying because David sees the bigger picture. <clears throat> what David is mourning is the division, the hatred, the divisiveness that's taking place between the people of God. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, right before he was going to go to the cross, he prayed to, to God the Father. And, and as he was praying, he said... Um, you know, basically, uh, Lord, I pray for them, speaking of you and me, followers of Christ, that they would be one, even as you and I are one, Jesus speaking to the Father. And, and Jesus had said that all men will know that you are my disciples, that you're disciples of Jesus Christ by the love that you have one for another. And so David mourning over this, it's not unlike Abraham Lincoln who mourned over the divisiveness of the nation during the Civil War or bloodiest battles we've, we've ever known as a nation or when we were fighting ourselves. He said at one point, because during the Civil War, both sides loudly proclaimed and professed that they were doing the will of God, that they were fighting and that God was on their side. And Abraham Lincoln said something to the effect of, uh, one of them may be right. One side might be right that God is with them and that they're fighting according to the will of God. But he says, uh, one of them may be right, but it is certain that, that one or both of them is, is wrong because they can't both be right. And, and so this is the heart of David here. He's mourning not just this man's death. He's mourning the bigger implication that there's civil war, that there's anger and, and divisiveness and bitterness and bloodshed. And so he follows the coffin, he commands everyone that they tear their clothes, and the, the language there seems to very uh, specifically to imply that, that it would be Joab and all of the soldiers that were to tear their clothes and, and put ash upon them, the symbol of mourning, that they were to mourn this man. And verse 32 continues, so they buried Abner in Hebron. This is, a, this is a great high honor, Hebron being that place that, that uh, means to have communion or fellowship with God. That's what the name implies. And, and so there in this place, he's saying, no, this guy, he belongs in Hebron, and that's the place he's going to be. And the king lifted up his voice, and he wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept, and the king sang a lament over Abner, and he said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound nor your feet put into fetters as a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. In other words, 
listen, you weren't defeated in a fair fight. He's making a public declaration. This wasn't fair what happened to you. This wasn't right what happened to you. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. David says, look, I'm fasting in mourning here and I'm not going to be dissuaded from that. Now all the people took note of it, of what? Of how David responded to this uh, and... It says that uh, it, it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. And we saw last week, David was not a man without sin, and he was not a man without having, you know, his own issues that, you know, he would pursue in a sinful way. He multiplied wives to himself. That's going to spell disaster for him. It's at the heart of his greatest troubles, but... Uh, but Having said that, David was a man of great character. He was a man that his people saw truly had a heart after the Lord. The Bible tells us that David was a man, God speaking, after my own heart. God doesn't make mistakes. So, so God saw David, and that should bring you and I hope. We, we're, we're sinners saved by grace. There are areas in your life where you fall short, but hidden in Christ Jesus, holding on to that relationship with the Lord, And making Him your Lord and Savior. God doesn't see you as your sins deserve. He sees you clothed in Christ. He sees you holy and without blemish. Which is a joke because you are anything but holy and without blemish. I am anything but holy and without blemish. But hidden in Christ, that's how God sees us. And so the people here are seeing David's character manifested. It's well-pleasing to them. <clears throat> says verse 37, For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel, and I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me? The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now he says an interesting thing there in verse 39. Verse 39 he says, I am weak today. That word weak, it doesn't mean weak like you might perceive it to be. Like, you know, I'm a weak king, you know, uh, or, or anything like that. In fact, you might circle that word weak. Nearby you could write this. You could write gentle and restrained because that's what that word means. And what David is doing is he's saying, look, in contrast to Joab and, and in contrast to Joab, Joab's brother Abishai, in contrast to these men who, who are harsh, I am, I'm gentle and I'm restrained. First, first point today, if you're taking notes, write it down. In order to survive, in the game of survival, this life of survival, in order to survive, you must outwit the enemy. You have to outwit the enemy. See, David wanted to deal with others the way that God had dealt with him. That's a very wise decision on David's part. God had dealt with David very gently. He had been gentle and God had been restrained in David's life. Just the way that God is gentle and restrained in your life. And David understood, listen, I need to treat others in this way. I need myself to be gentle and restrained just as God has been with me. See, the Bible teaches that God is love. The Bible teaches that love is patient, love is kind, that love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love never fails. And for David... He's learned to trust everything to the God who loves him, even his enemies. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, you you hear this and you say, yeah, but Abner killed his brother. All bets are off, man. Yeah, it might be understandable to have that attitude. It might be understandable. and We can can relate with Joab in his his anger towards, towards Abner. But listen, it's still sinful. Romans... Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Put on the screen for you. Listen to what it says. It says, you therefore, speaking of you and me, you therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now there's a mouthful there. Basically, here's here's the idea. He says, look, you pass judgment on somebody else and you're guilty of the very thing that, that you pass judgment on them. Think about Joab and Abner. He's like, that guy killed my brother. Well, what did you do, Joab? You killed him, right? And and not even in the same way because Abner killed Joab's brother in battle. On the battlefield, Joab killed Abner in cold blood. And so he, a mere human being, passed judgment on Abner and yet he did the very same thing. Romans chapter 2 finishes up there that, that scripture I shared, basically saying, hey, do you show contempt for the riches of, of his, God's kindness, forbearance and patience? Not realizing God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This is what David has discovered. <clears throat> David knew God's kindness. David knew God's long-suffering in his own life. He had experienced it personally. And listen, he understood that whatever needed to happen with Abner, hey, listen, God was well able to do. Whatever needed to happen with his enemies, God was well able to do. The Bible says that God's ways are not man's ways. Now, this is where we have to outwit the enemy. This is is where we need to be very wise and discerning because here's the deal. One of the enemy's primary tactics, listen to this. One of the enemy's primary tactic in your life and in my life is, is to get you to believe that the battle belongs to you. Now, what comes to my mind is David back in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when he fought Goliath. When David fought Goliath, and he was fronting off there with Goliath, and Goliath is just blaspheming God to David's face. He's despising David and David's God to his face, and David responds and says, you know, basically, if I can paraphrase, look, you come to me with a sword and a shield, and you come to me as a, as a, a pagan unbeliever, somebody who blasphemes God, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And David goes on to say, look, the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him. And the enemy, his chief tactic in your life and in my life is to get us to believe that the battle belongs to us. That I need to take vengeance. Now the the Lord says in his word, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. The question is, do you believe that? Where your enemies are concerned. Can you trust your enemies to the Lord? See, because the battles we face, they're not really against people. They're against principalities and powers. That's what the Bible says. And I will tell people in counseling this all the time. 
when the person comes in for counseling, I'll, I'll tell them, listen, you need to understand that there's 200% truth that you're dealing with all the time. There's the 100% truth of the flesh and blood, and then there's the 100% truth of the spiritual realm. And, and you're here to see me, so often 98, 99% of the counseling we do is marriage counseling, and you're here to see me because, you know, you, you have a physical problem and you want to attack it on a physical level, and you have been attacking it on a physical level. You need to understand your problem's not physical, that it's spiritual, that, there, that there's a spiritual battle that's going on. And if the enemy can, can outwit you and get you to focus on the physical then he beats you all day, twice on Sunday, right? And so you need to understand it's a spiritual battle. Now, being a spiritual battle, we have to fight it in the spiritual realm, on spiritual terms if you want to survive. The other day I was driving uh, to church, actually, to the church office, and there's a field by my house, and I watched this hawk just dive out of the, the sky, and it was going after, you know, a little squirrel, and that squirrel was just running for its life, you know, and he ended up missing it, and it brought to my remembrance another time, you know, when, when I, was, I was, used to live on, on uh, the creek there, and I would see, you know, hawks all day long, and one day I saw a hawk that had actually got a snake, and it was, you know, way up in the air. It's got something. I'm like, what has he got? And then I watched him drop it. Now, here's the deal. When, when a hawk or an eagle, a bird of prey, fights a snake, how do they do it? Do they get on the ground to go toe-to-toe with the snake on the ground? That's not how they do it. They don't fight the snake on the ground. What do they do? They grab the snake and they bring him up into the air. And there up in the air, in the, in the, the clutches of that, of that hawk, that snake doesn't have any ground on which to get any sort of leverage or anything like that. And then the, the, the bird has gravity to work on its benefit, and he just drops it. And hits the ground, and the bird's like, okay, now I can eat it because it's dead. Right? And, and it's so instructive for us because here's what we need to understand. What the enemy wants you to do, the enemy's a snake. He wants you to fight him on his ground, on his terms, on his territory. And so often, that's exactly what we do. It's exactly what we do. See, so what we're called to do is, man, don't fight the fight on Satan's terms. Fight the fight on God's terms. Right? And so in order to survive, you have to outwit the enemy. Not only that, second point, in order to win the game of life or in order to survive, you must outplay the enemy. Look again, verse uh, 33 there at the end in verse 34, the, the king, David, he sings a lament about Abner. And he said, should Abner die as a fool dies? What's he mean by that? Well, remember, Abner was in Hebron. Hebron is that place, remember, that it means union. It means to to be joined together. It means communion with God. That certainly is what Hebron represented for David. He had spent a season in his life where he had gotten off track, where he began to walk by sight and not by faith, and it led him into the land of the, the, the enemy. He dwelt there in enemy territory, made his home there, so reminiscent of what you and I do when we take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to walk by, by sight and we begin to make our decisions based on fear and not on faith and so on. And so David got out of that place. What happened when God brought him to the, to the lo- logical end of trusting in the flesh? God let him hit something hard. Why? Because he didn't love David? No, because he wanted to bring David back to himself. And so God brought David to the end of himself and showed him what you're trusting in, you can't trust in. It's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you wanting. It's going to end up as a pile of ashes. And when you come to that realization, it is the hope of the Lord that you'll turn to him, that you'll worship, that you'll repent, which is precisely what David did. And when David did that, he brought him immediately to Hebron to a place of union and fellowship and communion with himself, a place where David now could be reminded, no, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Lord, I'm going to trust in you because you're good and you're God. And and as soon as David did that, the people of Judah came to him 
and made him their king. Everything that God had promised starting to come to pass when David said, Lord, I'm just going to come to you. I'm just going to abide with you. Well, this is the place where Abner came. That's what Hebron represents. It's also a city of refuge, which meant that Abner, who was accused of, of killing Joab's brother, hey, he can go to Hebron, a city of refuge, and he can get a fair trial there. He can be saved there. He can be spared there. Listen, because he didn't murder Joab's brother. He fought him in battle. And so he can be, he can be safe in Hebron. He can be delivered in Hebron. It's a picture of what happens with you and I when we are dead to rights, guilty of sin. And, and the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That, that the, the, the only hope that, that applies to every single person outside of God is an eternity in hell separated from God. The wages of sin is death. What you earn for the life that you live here on earth is death. But the gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That if you will believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, if you'll believe that, if you will cry out and come to the end of yourself and say, Lord, my life apart from you is like David's life apart from you when he went to Ziklag, this enemy territory where he made his home. It finishes up a pile of ashes. And the stuff I trust in lets me down. But you'll never let me down. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you're the son of the living God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. I believe that you offer me eternal life. And when you will make that profession, God will bring you into Hebron, into communion, into fellowship with him. And there you'll be safe. And so this is all that Hebron represents. It's this sanctuary city, this place of refuge. But what happens to to Abner? Well, God desires, hey, that's what should happen is we should come to this place. It's the only place where we can outplay the enemy. But what happened to Abner is he got outplayed. Abner goes into the sanctuary city. He goes into Hebron. And what does Joab do? Joab says, hey, let me talk to you over here. Takes him into the gate. Takes him outside of Hebron. And Joab promptly sticks a knife in his belly and kills him. Listen, what I want you to hear is that's what the enemy wants to do with you. He wants to take you today outside of Hebron. He wants to take you away. He wants to stick a knife in your belly. He wants to gut you like a fish. This is his desire. And this is always his tactic, is to get you outside of Hebron. And and outside of this place of being joined together and in communion with the Lord. And he does it in two primary ways. The first way that Satan gets you outside of Hebron is before you ever come into a relationship with God. Before you ever surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan will rob and seek to steal and kill and destroy. And so he'll try to get you to the place where you don't come into Hebron at all. That you decidedly say, well, I'm going to live my life according to my terms. If somebody was to ask you the question, and I ask you the question today, hey, where are you going to spend eternity? And if you say, well, you know, I believe that there's a God, I think I'm going to heaven. All right, my next question would be why? Why do you think you're going to heaven when you die? And if your answer was, well, because I'm, you know, I'm not Charles Manson, you know, yeah, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Charles Manson, I'm a decent guy. Well, what if you applied for a job based on those qualifications? Hey, why should I hire you today? Well, I'm not Charles Manson. Oh, really? Great. Because I thought you were. You're not? Okay, I'll hire you kind of thing. No. So if, you, if, if, your, if your criteria for answering the question, how do you know you're going to go to heaven, is, well, I'm basically a good person, I would remind you, the Bible says that there's none righteous. No, not one. There's nobody good. The Bible says there's nobody who does good. The Bible says everybody has sin and is separated from God by their sin. There's only one thing that can get you into heaven, and that's faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins in your place, and that you have said, I'm not trusting in my works to gain a right relationship with God. I'm not trusting in my being a good person to get to God. I'm not even trusting in my ability to keep the words of the Bible. So many people say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? Ah, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. 
And you've heard me say this before. I always say you're a liar because you can't even name the Ten Commandments. So how can you live by it if you can't even name them? You know? And so, so, so the issue there is, man, this right here, this is what we need to understand that the, Satan's first tactic is to get you to a place where, where you're going to reject God or where you're gonna, whether you're going to deceive yourself into thinking, well, you know, God's going to take me to heaven because I believe there's a God, but he's going to take me there because I've earned it, because, I, because of my works. Wrong answer. He's going to take you to heaven if and only when you say, all the penalty for my sin has been paid in Jesus Christ. My faith is in him and in his work on the cross. I'm trusting in the work that the Lord did. Lord, have mercy on me. And listen, today, if you're here and, and you would answer the question, how do you know you're going to heaven, and it would have some component of, because I'm basically a good person, I would beg you to reconsider your relationship with the Lord today. Because the enemy has done a good job in keeping you deceived and keeping you outside of Hebron. Communion and fellowship with God. The only basis of communion and fellowship with God is that you say, God, I can come to you because I'm clothed in Christ. I can come to you because Jesus died on the cross for my sin in, your, in my place. And that's the basis on which I come to you, and that's the basis on which I hang my hope of eternal life. And if this is a revelation for you today, and I will give you an invitation at the end of the message, just to, to, to proclaim, Lord, I've been trusting in the wrong things, I need to trust in you. I'll give you an invitation to receive Christ and to just make that profession in your heart. Well, that's the first way that Satan keeps you outside of Hebron, but the second way that, that he outplays you and keeps you outside of Hebron is when not just your salvation, but your sanctification. Now, that's a, a $5 Christian word. It just basically means that, that the, once you come to know the Lord, you have a responsibility to walk obediently with God, to, to serve God. You have, an, you have a responsibility to be able to, to encounter different situations. Maybe it's a, a division in a relationship with somebody. It's a, it, you're at odds with somebody. And, and the, you have a responsibility to be able to say, okay, this is what my flesh wants to do, but this is what God wants me to do, and I need to walk in fellowship and in union with God. And Satan will attack that. He wants to get you outside of Hebron. How does he do that? Well, the exact same way that Joab did that to Abner. Joab goes to Abner and he's like, hey, come on out here. Let me talk to you for a minute. Satan to you, he, he will say that in various ways. He'll be like, hey, you know what? Don't go to church on Sunday. Come on over here. You don't need to, get, you, you don't need to go to a growth group. You, 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 could, you got other stuff to do with your time. You're too busy. Come on over here. Do this other thing. Hey, you, you, you don't have time to pray. You don't have time to be in the Word. You don't have time to, you know, be spending time connecting with other Christians. You're a busy man. You're a busy woman. You've got things to do. You're fine. Don't worry about it. You're, you, you love the Lord. You're good. I gave the illustration last week. Pastor going to a, to a member of his congregation. One wants to know, where you been, man? You haven't been in church in a long time. Doesn't say a word to him, just sits down in front of the fire, takes the coal, sticks it outside the fire. They watch it go from being red hot to, to almost completely turning, turning black there. And then he picks the coal just at the very last second, puts it back into the fire, glowing red hot. The guy's parting comment to him as he goes to leave, having never spoken a word, is, thanks for visiting, Pastor. Thanks for the fiery sermon. I'll see you in church on Sunday. Because that's what the enemy wants you to do. If he can get you from being in fellowship with other believers and in fellowship with the Lord, more importantly, and get you off and isolated, then you, your fire starts to grow dim. And being outside of Hebron, that's the place he wants you to be. He will outplay you every single time. In Romans chapter 5, Paul describes two men, each of them reigning over a kingdom. He describes Adam who was given dominion over the earth and reigning and ruling over God's creation. Secondly, he describes Jesus, who, who came to redeem the earth after Adam train wrecked it, right? And, and he now reigns supreme over the new creation. And so because Adam sinned against God, he lost his kingdom, and he, was, and he therefore condemned all mankind to death. But in his great love for us, God sent Christ to the world to rescue and to redeem mankind. Paul articulates it this way, Romans chapter 5. He says, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. 
For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say that Jesus' act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. And so the question today remains for you and me to answer. Here's the question. Listen, at the end of the day, which man's kingdom is going to rule and reign in your life? Is it going to be the kingdom of Adam or is it going to be the kingdom of God? Are you, who are you going to make an alliance with today? Are you going to make an alliance with Adam and his tribe or are you going to make a, an alliance with Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah? That's what you've got to answer is who am I in alliance with? And you have to make no mistake, the, the, the tribe that you're aligned with makes all the difference in how you play the game of life. And what I'm trying to tell you is that if you're here today calling yourself a Christian, and this applies to the majority of people in this room, that you can be saved, have a relationship with God, and yet functionally and practically you can align yourself with the tribe of Adam and begin acting in those ways that Adam acted. And this is exactly what the temptation is here. Certainly what we see Joab doing, and that's why David is saying, look, I got nothing to do with that, because I am not aligned with the kingdom of Joab. I'm not aligned with the kingdom of Adam. I'm not going to live my life according to the flesh. I'm going to live my life in obedience to the Lord. And I'm going to trust him. Well, thirdly, and finally, not only do we, uh, in order to survive, must we outwit the enemy. Not only in order to win the game of life, must we outplay the enemy. But the third point, in order to win the game of life, you must outlast the enemy. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, When Saul's son heard, that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart. Okay? So he's speaking about Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth just found out that his chief general lost his life in Hebron and now he loses heart. Why? Because he had placed his faith in man and not placed his faith in God. That's an entirely other message. That'll preach all day long. Just write it down, maybe. That's a point for you. Where's your, your faith placed? Do you have your faith today placed in man? Or do you have faith placed in God? Man will let you down every time. And so Ishbosheth has placed all of his faith in a man, Abner. Abner's dead. Now he loses all hope. He loses heart. And all Israel was troubled. And now Saul's son had two men who were captains of truth, troops. The name of one was uh, Benah, and the name of the other was uh, <laughs> uh, Rechab. And the sons, <clears throat> the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, uh, of the children of Benjamin, um, they were the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Beerothites fled to Gidom and have been sojourners there until this day. All of that just to say these guys were Benjamites, okay? Benjamites meaning they're Family, they're members of the family of Saul, who himself was a Benjamite, which makes them members of Ishbosheth's family. That's important as we continue. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a uh, Saul's son had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Hey, Jonathan and Saul have been killed, right? And so um, his nurse. Um, took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, this is just to let you know, Saul had another son who had a right to the throne, but they don't see him right now as a threat. Why? Well, because he had an injury and he was, he was lame. We don't know if he was paralyzed in, in the fall that happened when, his, when his, you know, uh, the, the gal that was watching him ran off with him to protect him after, hey, Saul and Jonathan are dead. They're going to be coming after you. I've got to hide you. I've got to protect you. And in the tragicness of trying to protect him, he actually was injured and now he's, he's a kid and he's lame. And, and so basically this is just telling us he's not perceived as an immediate threat. Then, verse 5, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. So apparently Ishbosheth is a musician. 
Um, he'd fit right in in our second service, you know, gets up at the crack of noon. So he's lying, it was actually a common practice during the day, or during this time that you'd take a nap in the heat of the day. So he's there taking a nap at his home in bed. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. Hey, we're here to get provisions for our troops kind of thing. So they get into his house and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then these members of his own tribe, they kill this guy. Why? Well, because they think, oh, now that, you know, Abner's dead, and this guy's here, now they're pulling an Abner, they're like, what, what's going to happen to us? Because they falsely perceive David's going to come and kill us. That's not what David wants to do, that's not the heart of David, but this is what they falsely perceive. And so they're like, well, we gotta, we got to figure this out. So they go and they kill him in his bed, stabbed him in the stomach, and then Rachab and Benaiah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed, in his bedroom, and then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. So they got this guy's head, and they're running all, you know, through the plain, you know, with this guy's head in tow. Where are they going? Well, verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Now hold that right there and just know this. David did not perceive Saul nor his house as an enemy. In the battle of the flesh, where Satan wants to get you, he wants you to, to see things in terms of flesh and blood. David wasn't operating according to flesh and blood. He was operating in the spirit and he was trusting in the Lord. So he didn't see him as his enemy. So they're like, Here, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, of Saul and his descendants. Again, another thing I could go off on and preach a whole message on this. But when you're involved in sin and you murder somebody, don't you dare put the Lord's covering over that and say, oh, this is the Lord's will. You know, if, if you're cheating on your taxes and, and saying, oh, this is the Lord's will, you're, you know, I'm going to, oh, I, I got more month than money. What am I going to, well, I'll go rob a bank. This is the Lord's will. I'm providing for my family. The Bible says, you know, a man who doesn't provide for his family, you know, he shouldn't even eat. So I'm providing for my family. Give me a break. So these guys are like, yeah, here's what's going on. We're, this is the Lord's will. But David answered. Rachab and Benaiah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite. And, and he said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. You remember back in chapter, uh, chapter 1. This Amalekite comes and he's like, yeah, I killed Saul. He, you know, he tried to kill himself. He, he wasn't dead. He asked me to do it. I did it. Well, the motive of his heart was, hey, give me a reward for that. David said, here's your reward, death, because he killed the king. So David says, hey, look, you know, this is what I did with that guy. If I did this with that guy, verse 11, how much more when the wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not you two guys anymore. You know, you, you just committed murder. I'm going to execute judgment. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Listen, to win the game of life, you must outlast the enemy. And here's the point of all of this, and you can't miss it. One of the biggest lies of the enemy to you and to me is that we need to take matters into our own hands. One of the biggest lies of the enemy is, look, you need to do something, and you need to do it now. I remember when I was a kid, I went down to buy my first car and was buying a new truck at the Toyota dealership and my dad went with me and I saw the truck I wanted and I, want, I had to have it. And we sat down there in the negotiating room and my dad worked his magic and, and, uh, and you know, basically, you know, he's posturing like he's going to leave. Now, the, the salesman leaves the room, you know the drill, and the, and the closer's going to come in and my dad turns to me while he's out of the room and he says... We're going to get up and we're going to walk out and I don't want to hear a word from you. 
And I'm like almost in tears. I'm like, you're going to lose my truck for me, Dad, you know. And the guy's telling him, you got to act now. This deal is for today. You're going to lose it. It's, we only got a few hours left. My dad's like, it's, it's all a lie, Dad. We don't have to act now. He wants us to act now. Just chill. So sure enough, the guy comes back in, and my dad gets up. He goes, thanks, we're going to leave. And we're walking out. We didn't get out the door. The guy's chasing us down. Please come back, you know, kind of thing. And we left with my truck. But I didn't, we didn't leave on his terms, you know. And the issue here, the enemy, he wants you to take matters into, his own, into your own hands. He wants to tell you, look, you've got to act right now. And here's David's attitude. David goes, look, if God anointed me king, if God wants me to rule, he can work out the circumstances. It's completely up to him. Listen, God is able to work out the, the circumstances in your life too. And I don't know what it is that's got you pressured, what it is that's got you worried right now, what it is maybe that you've been tempted to take matters into your own hands and you can't trust the Lord by faith. Listen, you have to trust in him. Genesis 1-1, pop quiz. What does it say, anybody? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he need your help to do it? Did he ever ask you for your help to do it? Is there anything you could have done to help him? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe every word of the Bible. Because the guy that created heaven and earth is more than able to handle whatever situation you got going in your life. More than that, listen. Romans 5. If you read in Romans chapter 5, you'll read that it says, At just the right time, Jesus died for your sins. 1 Timothy 2, if you read through chapter 2, you'll find at just the right time, the text says, God gave the gospel to the world. You get to 2 Corinthians 6, you read through that chapter, you will find that it says at just the right time, Jesus saves those who call on him. You get to Galatians chapter 6, you read through that chapter, you'll see that it says at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up, we don't lose heart. See, in every instance, the, the phrase, at just the right time, it, it's the, the Greek word kiros, and it means a fixed time. It means a definite time. And here's what it means. It means that God works on his schedule, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and he has scheduled in your life what he's going to do, and when he's going to do it, and he doesn't need your help to do it. You know what he needs? He needs you to let go. You familiar with the Bible verse that says, be still and know that I am God? Do you know what that means, literally? It means put your hands up in the air. Take your hands off it. Put your hands up. Trust in God to do it. You don't need to stress. You don't need to strife. You just need to rest in Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he'll direct your paths. 